Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is a crowd podcast. Welcome back to the French Rugby Podcast with me, Tim Graves, former Scotland international Johnny Beattie and former France hooker Benjamin Kayser. It's been a tough week for French rugby, so we'll give you some more insight on that and into the fallout from the COVID outbreak in the France camp and the investigation into it. But has it been a better week for you guys? Hopefully you've had a better week than Fabien Galtier. As much as I was disappointed not to be in Paris, um, I think we all miss being at live sport. We're lucky that we still get to do, but Benji and actually get to stadiums. I'm so look disappointed, but hopefully the game will still go ahead at some point. Instead, I look, it was lovely weather down here in Hossegore. Went for a walk around the beach and the lake with my kids. Had a cot de boeuf and a big bottle of wine for my lunch to... Oh. It actually wasn't too bad in the end. It was a good old weekend. So no, it, it wasn't too bad. But look, I just hope it gets played. I hope we get to the stadium in a few weeks' time, a couple of weeks' time, and the game uh, does go ahead. I think that's what everyone wants. Benji, spring has sprung in the UK? Mate, it's on. It's unreal, I have to say. The, my, the, the bog that used to be my garden, <laughs> where that basically every time that I stepped there, it would... It would, you know, suck up my boots and stuff and I couldn't even go, has dried up a little bit. So no, no. And, and on the house front, because you guys don't care, you guys don't ask anymore. But <laughs> I finally have a fence and you can't even imagine the luxury of having a fence when you've got a dog. So uh, I used to be the angry little guy who would, you know, go in, in, in shorts and shorts and boots, walk the dog every night. And now I just kick him out. We still care, Benji, but we can't hear the builders anymore. So I just assumed <laughs> it was all right. Yeah. Well, you uh, you touched on it already. We um, we chatted about it on our emergency podcast at the end of last week. But uh, Bernard Laporte has now confirmed that Fabien Galtier did leave the France bubble. But apparently to watch his son play rugby and in the immediate aftermath of the Italy game in round one. He says he wore a mask. He was sensible. Is that the definitive version of events? I mean, there's an investigation, but what do we make of that? Apparently it is. It is. No, not apparently. It is the definite because there was because there were people there uh, watching. You have to remember that France is not in full lockdown. So some shops, shopping malls are closed, but kids still go to school. Um, there's obviously restrictions everywhere. Don't get me wrong, but no, it's not full lockdown. So was it the most outrageous thing to do considering he's outside, he's wearing a mask? I hope he didn't cuss and kiss and hug and touch anyone. Okay. It wasn't basically the most outrageous thing to do and the most dangerous thing to do. Okay. Was it within the regulation of the bubble? Yes or no? That's, that's the only issue that I've got with it. Can the players go out on the, on the Sunday to uh, you know go enjoy a game and have a, see their mates and say hello even from a distance? Can they go back you know and see their families? The players who live in who are in Marcoussi at the moment, some of them play for Stade Français, Gary Ficou. Some of them play for racing. They could just jump in a cab and go home and say hello and have a coffee with mates. They don't do it. So that's the whole idea behind it. And then why not come out with it clean straight away? And I have a feeling that because people were watching, because there's no way around it, the cover-up is just not possible. So that's the only reason why the truth is has come out. I think that's the bit that sticks for everyone though, Benji, is the cover-up element. So obviously, Galti and Laporte are, are really tight. Um, really, really tight. Like Fabian's talked about how his career has been bound to Bernard's through his career and he owes him a lot. But that, that's the bit that sticks for me is that Bernard on the heads have come out and said, look, it's been a prep of physique or it's been something to do with the Sevens team. I've spoken to Fabian. He did absolutely nothing wrong. I trust him. End of story. Then he has to go on the TV this weekend and say, actually, people were there. It's been corroborated. Yes, Fabian was watching the game with Thomas Lombard. Not a big deal. He had a mask on. He was watching his son play rugby. So it's the little bits of, well, yeah. if they are white lies or there's little bits of misinformation, where does that end? Is it definitive? Yes or no? We could say yes, they've accepted that for now, but are other things going to come out that might be more drastic? Yeah, but can I ask you a question, Johnny? Do you yeah. think he brought it inside the bubble? No idea, mate. Exactly. No then, idea. Do you think he should be sacked? 
No. So I think basically in both things is precisely what you said. We don't want massive sanctions. Bloody hell, he's no. doing a fantastic job. I want to stay there. I want him to stay in position. But admit it, just like you said, admit it from the start. No cover-ups, no half-truth. But the problem with that is I don't want him to be sacked. He's a fantastic coach. Yeah. There's two different layers to it. The first layer is there's a game to be played. There's loads of money at stake. And there's a grand slam online for France. If it's you know said that he's disrespected the rules or whatever protocol was, it's 28-0 for Scotland. Is that what it is? I think so. Again, we go back to the point we made last week in terms of the fact that the Six Nations tournament organisers didn't come out with this as a sanction. And as Benji will probably point out, the rules of, of the bubbles for all of the different nations are slightly different. So we don't know what the sanction will be, do we? But you yeah. rightly say, Johnny, it's a possibility. That could be. It's a possibility. And for like, I know for a fact, so our guest that's coming on later, if he was the captain of the Scotland side, that would be exactly what he'd be fighting for. And that is what the Scottish side will be fighting for. If the other team hasn't respected protocol and hasn't respected us as a team, being the Scotland team, then we deserve the points. That's just the way it'll be. That's the way they'll think and that's what they'll fight for. I'm not sure what the committee will decide in the end, but that's that's the first thing that has to be fought over, really. The second part is Fabian's been very clear and look, we're a tidy team with our image, with our way that we live, with our respect and protocols. And then there's like a sort of trust. Well, like if he doesn't trust it and he's the top of our tree, do we have as much faith in him as a, as a playing group? I think they probably will, but there will still be questions because at the minute he's been unbreakable. He's been unbelievable and the team's absolutely flying. But will there be little cracks in a relationships? Have things been said behind doors that we don't see, we're not aware of, that could affect the way the dynamics go of the French national team over the next six, seven months? Which I, like, I think those are two fairly important things that we're going to have to... It'll, get, it'll take time to be worked out. But those, for me, are the two biggest things that are going to come out over the next couple of months. I couldn't agree more with what you said about the sense that he's he's laid out a very important, drastic, strict. Uh, fully commitment, strict uh, protocol in terms of either you are 150% with the French team or you're not. Yeah, so that I agree with you. That will have some consequences. It can shine uh, negatively on the players. Uh, it can have an impact. It will have to be digested from within. Can it cause, how do you say, like a strain on the trust like from the management side to the players, I agree with you. The only thing that I don't agree is that you said, if there's been a breach of protocol, Scotland should win. All the teams in Six Nations don't have a protocol with Six Nations. The French team have got a protocol with the Minister of Sport of France, who said, if you don't respect this protocol, we will not allow you to travel. So actually, it's, I don't think, unless I'm wrong, but I don't think that any of those Six Nations teams said, if one of the teams doesn't respect the protocol, they will basically you know, put us in jeopardy and then they will lose. I don't think that was signed between the teams. That, but that's the reality of things is that it's the first time in French sport that six weeks ago, the Minister of Sport said, I'm not sure we, we will allow you to play Six Nations. Right, fine. We will give you a derogation. Don't know how you call that, but like a special... Uh, special authorization to travel because we've accepted your protocol sanitaire and all the restrictions that you put and your sanitary bubble that you've created with the Six Nations, right? And that's when the Minister of Sport came out and said, I want to report, so I want to know exactly what happened. And they asked Bernard Laporte, so Florian Grill and all the other guys, they can yell as much as they want. It's still the Minister of Sport that asked Bernard Laporte and Bernard Laporte is conducting it. Was it the best question to do in terms of authenticity of the answer? I don't know, okay? But, but that's what she asked for. And then she said, I've given the authorization, I can always take it away. So that's that's the real risk that there is, that the consequences of what could have happened of Fabien, not Fabien, of taking the decisions of taking, taking the sevens guy into the team, taking decisions of taking the under 20s guys within the squad with the risk of a negative test being actually positive the next day and all those things. That's the reality is that next week, the Minister of Sport, depending on what she sees on that report, can be like, right, you guys have basically took me for a fool. I've granted you my author a special authorization because I thought you're going to be very thorough in the respect of this of this protocol. It was not the case. You guys are not playing the rest of the Six Nations. That's the reality of what can happen. And now we know that Fabian did leave the bubble. I know we can argue the rights and wrongs of the bubbles, but we know he did go to watch his son play. Do you think that's a realistic possibility that that could happen, Benji? That they could be stopped by the Minister of Sport from playing the rest of the tournament? To, to be honest, I have no idea. And that's one tough decision to make because just like Johnny said, there's a grand slam on the line. So there's also what, what the grand slam is not just for the for the, the, the coaching staff and the players. It's also it puts a smile on everybody's face in France, you know. So at the same time, she's got that responsibility, but she's got a responsibility, I'm assuming, that you all have superiors, right? And if the French president is like, listen, we, we, everybody says that we're idiots and we're looking like fools because we're not respecting the protocol. What have you done? And, you know, she takes that blame and then, you know, passes it on and all that. So I don't believe it's the worst thing in the world that he's done 
because we're all humans. He did wear a mask. We're outside. Okay. But was he allowed? Yes or no? It's not even a question of what did he do? Is was it allowed? Yes or no? And what pisses me off, it's like Johnny said, is did we get an answer? Even from him, he's, he didn't, he's, they asked him basically, did you go out during that week? And he said, everything I, was, I did was part of the protocol. He didn't answer yes or no. He just said, you know, everything was part of the protocol. So it's that, it's that sort of not really answering the questions, sort of snakish attitude that I, that I don't like. And so to add to that, Benji, another bit is that, so the French boys admitted as well this week that they went out for crepes or goffles in Rome as well. They went out for waffles. It's now turned from Bubblegate to Wafflegate. Like it's never ending. So look, there's been lots of little trips out to do this and that and the next thing, but there has to be a definitive answer from somebody. Yes or no. Is it in protocol? Is it not? Are you allowed to do it? Are you not? And then if no, there's going to be sanctions. But like you said, Benji, how high does it go? So look, France are hosting a 2023 World Cup in two years' time, if they like as high as it can go, sports a sports minister is not going to embarrass the French national rugby team and pull them from a Six Nations. There's no way. I, I think it's in their interest as well not to look stupid. There's so much to look forward to. There's so much excitement around that tournament. They've announced their first first fixture is going to be the against the All Blacks in the first game. There is so much on the line in terms of reputation and how they build towards this tournament in two years' time. That there's no way I I honestly can't see them pulling them out of the competition because it would just be a humiliation for everybody. And I think Six Nations is already a global tournament, but to humiliate yourself like that before you host a tournament in 2023, I can't see it happening. No way. Never for, never forget that last week, so I'm going to butcher her name. Roxana Marasivanu. I think that's her name. That's Romanian her. name. So she's a former swimmer. She, I think she was an Olympian and all that. I think she was an Olympic medalist. Incredible athlete and stuff. But imagine the pressure that she's getting from every single cl- um, yeah. club organization and sporting organization in the whole of France. They're like, let us play. Let us play. We're dying here. We need the money. We're all, you know, crumbling from within. Then she's going to go because that authorization needs to be validated by the French government. And at the same time, if one of that same sports at the head of sport in the, the French national side did not respect just a simple protocol, it's really tough for her to then have an argument and make a case in front of the rest of the government to say, right, let us try this. It will work. The origin of the problem is very small, but the consequences at the moment can be ginormous. Huge. And Benji, I think... We have to put the point that a lot of people are making in the UK. It doesn't look good. Johnny mentioned players going out for waffles and they've admitted that. We saw the celebrations, which we've said, I think, on here, that it probably wasn't wise for them to post on social media, but you can understand players getting carried away. But that happened in the aftermath of, of the win in Dublin. That isn't necessarily the the cause of, of this outbreak, but people are saying that it, it doesn't look good, does it? For French rugby, to see players celebrating, to see them going out for waffles, it just doesn't look good, does it? Oh, there's a clear distinction between the waffles... <laughs> If that's true, that's that's just stupid, okay? That's just, it's really pushing it. I don't even know what the protocol is, but for me, there's a clear distinction between celebrating in Dublin. What's the difference between celebrating in Dublin and after the Wales-England game, George North singing a song in, in the changing rooms, everybody's having a beer? It's precisely the same thing. Same place, same people, same contact. So I've got zero issue, as long as it stays players plus management, as long as it stays that, to meet in their hotel and have a thousand beers if they want to after a big win in in Dublin, as long as nobody comes in and as long obviously that they don't come out. I don't see absolutely any issue. They can report that in social media. It's probably not the smartest thing because they all will be judged by, like they say in France, 60,000 French coaches, 60 million French coaches, sorry. And and, and that's, that's the only issue. But for me, there's a clear distinction between waffles and celebrating after the game. Celebrating after the game is, listen, there's no point of saying to the boys, once you've smashed the shit out of each other for 80 minutes on the field, wear a mask, don't look at each other. The harm is done. Having a few beers is part of rugby. As long as they stick together, I don't see any problem. Waffles is different. And obviously going to see your son individually when it's not allowed to play, even if you're outside, is different. I'm sitting here thinking we're talking about waffles. This is ridiculous. But bringing it back to the the reality of what Roxana needs to deal with, the Minister of, of Transport, there's in England, we've got a roadmap, right? In the UK of knowing when things are going to come back. They're saying by May, you might have some people in the stands. There's what, 20 million people who had the first jab. By July, every, everybody's done. <laughs> Way behind in Mate. terms of vaccinations. So they have zero idea of when things will get coming. And if anything, the government at the moment is working very, very hard to try to prevent from another lockdown. So they actually, in England, things, hopefully, fingers crossed, touch wood, whatever you want, things are sort of looking to gradually get better. 
in France, they're getting worse at the moment. So it's not a matter of, yeah, well, listen, let's just, let's just let them play for another couple of weeks, then we'll be out anyhow. It's the worst is ahead. So now is not the time to even have the slightest little problem. Hello. Um, hello there. What voice do you want me to do? We're all doing a little bit. I'll just do my voice. Do your I? voice. Yeah, thanks. Hello, I'm Joe Marler. People think I hate people, but I don't. <laughs> I actually love interaction with people. I love finding out what jobs they do and whether I could do what they do. The Joe Marler Show. Joe Marler Show. With new episodes every Wednesday. Johnny, you got some good news to share with the listeners, haven't you? I do, mate. We've got our first sponsor. And I think you're going to like it, Benji. Think of something typically French. Oh, my word. Listen, it's what makes my heart beat at the moment. I'm a huge, huge coffee lover. Whole beans grounded every morning. That's what I wake up to. And that's this lovely sound that I love to hear in my kitchen every morning. We're living off it in our house as well after number three arriving in November. So this episode is proudly brought to you by Packed Coffee. It's coffee without compromise. Packed Coffee offer flexible coffee plans delivered to your door. They only source the best coffee and they pay farmers an average of 55% more than the fair trade baseline. You can also choose from over 15 different coffees and more than eight origins. Johnny, are you whole bean like me or are you ground coffee kind of guy? I'm ground, mate. Well, you're both in luck. With packed coffee, you can select exactly how you want your coffee and then it's delivered to you with free and fast delivery. No hidden charges and it goes straight through your letterbox. So if you want to try packed coffee, you can get your first bag from just $1.95 with the discount code FRENCH. Go to packcoffee.com, P-A-C-T coffee.com and enter the code French at the checkout. Enjoy, guys. Regalez-vous. Well, let's get our guest on now then because he might be able to give us a, another Scottish perspective on the situation, among other things. Former Scotland international, Greg Laidlaw joins us. How are you, Greg? Very well. Thank you, guys. Uh, pleasure to be on and you know, looking forward to chatting to you. Great to have you on. And you're obviously out in Japan at the moment and the top league season was delayed a little bit, but it's underway now. But we've just been chatting about the whole France COVID Six Nations situation. Obviously, we're supposed to play Scotland at the weekend. So have you spoken to any of the boys in the Scotland camp and um, what do they make of it all? Uh, yeah, I've, I've spoken to a couple of the guys uh, briefly on the, on the subject. And oh, I think just the frustration, first and foremost, obviously, from the well, from everybody's point of view, I guess not not just from the, from Scotland, from supporters to I'm sure the French team as well, you know, because they've obviously been playing well, and I'm I'm sure they were looking forward to you know playing back in Paris. So frustrating, uh, difficult times, and it's part of the world we're living in at the moment. And I guess the bigger picture, you know, for Scotland is 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 when that game can and can be played, and, and hopefully we can get uh, all the players available uh, to be able to make it the, the spectacle it deserves to be. That's a difficult thing, isn't it? I mean, it's just not knowing. As a player, you've you've been in that camp for over a decade. If you were in there now, you're training, you're in that bubble, but you've no idea if the if the game's going to be replayed, when it's going to be replayed. You're reading the media. It must be tricky for them. Yeah, it must be. And I think, I, I guess, the players have probably had to learn to adapt, uh, you know, over this, the last period of time anyway, adapting to a lot of new things, you know, playing in, playing in empty stadiums when it's quiet. Uh, adapting to the games being cancelled, you know, in domestic leagues. Um, so I, I guess it's becoming a new normal a little bit. Uh, obviously, nobody hoped it was going to get to this stage in the, in the Six Nations. Sadly, it's come to that. But I think for for the tournament's sake, for for everybody's sake, everybody is hoping. Obviously, the games can get played and and it doesn't affect the, the result of the tournament. Speaking about adaptation, tell me honestly, <laughs> tell me about Japan. I just want to know how, how you've adapted the family. How how big is the flat? I mean, so Greg Greg was Massive. in Kelma with me, and you had you had you had a nice house, and you had some outside space, and you know you could run around and stuff. But every single picture that I've seen, unless you're very good at communication, the sun is always out. You seem to have a big smile on your face. Uh, I'm sure the boys are basically, you know, uh, like drinking your your words in terms of knowledge that you can pass on to the team and stuff. How's it been? It's it's been awesome, thanks, uh, Benji. So far, and obviously, a lot different uh, when you when you sort of first arrive. And I've, I've travelled to Japan before, thankfully, and you know, but you know what it's like travelling to a country and then actually coming to live there is, is two different things. So I came out myself uh, first for the first couple of months, which which was actually brilliant. So I sort of found my found my feet a little bit, and then Rachel and the boys they travelled um, in December, and I arrived in in October. So. 
Yeah, mate, it's it's not not quite Mars, but when you first get here, it's uh, <laughs> far off. you know just a bit like yeah, you know you know just the, the silly silly little things about going to the supermarket and uh, you know trying to use the self serve <laughs> checkouts, you know praying that the the ladies don't ask you if you want a if you want a bag uh, for your stuff. Um, just you know keeping your eyes down and trying to get in and out there as, as quick as you can. No, that's like 99% of your time in Clermont, mate. It's just well, as soon as you started sort of roughly blabbing a little bit of French, then you decide to bugger off. Yeah, that was it, mate. That was it. I was just getting there with my, or starting to get there with some of my French. And then, you know, sadly, sadly, time was up on, on the French or certainly my time with Clermont and, you know, time to come out to Japan. So I think my French, um, although it probably wasn't brilliant, uh, Benji, it's, it's, I think it's going to be better than my Japanese. <laughs> Mate, talk us through your first couple of weeks because we caught up, I think, what, two weeks on the phone now and you had a fairly shaky start um, to life in the apartment. So talk us through what happened um, in the flat. <laughs> yeah, quite literally. I've actually, I've, I've had two earthquakes uh, since I've been here, uh, Johnny. Um, the first one, I was, I was still on my own. And um, as Benji mentioned, uh, we were in an apartment. Uh, we can, I just overlooked the, the, the training facilities here at the club. Actually, it's just out to my, to my right-hand side. And... Um, I was just lying um, on a sofa one night, just watching a bit of TV. I think I'd, I'd just been on the phone back home to, to Scotland and I almost felt sick. I was like, oh, I don't feel too well. And then I sort of looked up and the whole curtains were moving. And I was like, oh, this is a bit strange. And then I've obviously realised <laughs> what's happening. So that, that was my first experience. And then the second one was um, a lot more frightening. And we, I think it was the weekend of the... England game, I think. England, or the second game, I can't remember. And um, we were in bed, 11.15-ish at night, um, sound asleep, and both Rachel and I, um, we'd get an alert on our, on our iPhones. Um, sort of, you know, when you're sleeping, I've sort of rolled out of bed, sprung up to my feet, and then I was sort of, what's happening type thing, and, and Rachel's looked at her phone, and it was, you know, an earthquake alert, and then sure enough, literally 10 seconds after that, uh, the whole building uh, was on the move, and when I say on the move, it was Eesh. it was uh, really moving. So we, we had a bit of a fright, um, you know, that night. And people who've met here already, you know, texted, making sure we we were okay and what have you. So yeah, this this part of the world, the the buildings are incredible. Apparently, the building we live in, it's it's built on rollers. Uh, so it's, it's built to that's move. what you want rolling down the street yeah that's what you want yeah that's it <laughs> could have been could have been flying down the street for for all for all i knew but um yeah we're, we're okay and uh you know incredible engineering i guess but mate you said it was like a 7.3 or a 7.4 so it's not a small earthquake that's huge uh, what was scarier the alert on your phone or the actual earthquake you said that you basically absolutely crapped yourself when the alarm went off what was worse yeah well at the start it was that uh, beat because you know as i sort of said to you when, when it, it was a loud alarm i've literally rolled out of my bed and i'm sort of standing on my feet at the side of the bed before i before i realized i was uh, i was sort of up and and wondered what was happening but you know once the, once the building started moving uh, you know that it started to get pretty scary, to be honest. And I think you get told to run the bath, uh, f fill up the the bath full of water, uh, just in case the pipes burst and you don't have any water in the, in the house, and, and open your front door as well, in case the, the building gets any movement, in case you get trapped inside. So once you start hearing things like that, you start getting uh, it starts to become pretty real. But yeah, as I said, in incredible buildings uh, we get to live in. I don't want to joke about anything bad, but basically beating uh, England and Tukin, you would have been on roller skates even on this side of the world, mate. So in the <laughs> end, it's, it's, it's not too bad. I was that Greek. Did you enjoy watching? Like first time, obviously, for me, my family, first time since dad played in that game in 83, for you, Uncle Roy played in that game as well. How much did you enjoy watching the first Scotland win in, uh, in 40 years at Twickenham? Uh, listen, I, th I thought it was fantastic. And I think... It's funny, isn't it? Because you know, when you first step away from the game, it's it's sometimes quite hard to watch. And uh, you know, but I've been you know out for a, you know a couple of years now, which is, which is brilliant. And I guess I got to do it on my own terms, which is which makes it better. But you know, coming back to the boys that they got the win for the first time since 1983, I just I just thought they thoroughly deserved it. Uh, to be honest, it beats. I thought they they were the better team on the day. They, they really sort of took the game uh, towards England, and, and that just seemed to be their attitude. And you know, I, I truly believe the better team won on the day. So, you know, that, that's credit to the to the whole group, you know, for for going down there and getting the win. And, you know, sadly, that, that second week, you know, against the Welsh, we just came up short and probably a game that, that the boys should have won. And after speaking to them, you know, I know they're pretty frustrated. 
And you mentioned settling in, Greg. We, we've talked about earthquakes. We, we often speak to people on here about what it's like to settle into life in France. You mentioned it might be a little more tricky settling into life in Japan. Just give us an idea of the other kind of cultural things. People often talk about going to the onsen. I don't know what that's like in COVID times, if that's allowed, if you've been. Have you been to an onsen yet? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've been actually. We've, uh, there's one just kind of down the bottom, not down the bottom of the road, but you know, 10 minutes down the road there. Uh, they have been closed actually because we're still in um, what's classed as state of emergency uh, here in Japan, although the, the cases are quite low. Um, but earlier on they were open. And so, yeah, we have been down. We've been down to the to the one. The one that's near us is really good. So you've got um, basically a family section, which is outside. So obviously you're, you're covered up. You're, uh, you've got the <laughs> your, your undies on, you've got your speedos on, whatever you like to wear in there. Um, but if you want to take on the inside, it's uh, you know you're you're fully naked and, and immersed in the the Japanese culture uh, of the onsen. So uh, I've taken uh, I've taken the boys down a couple of times, uh, which seems to be commonplace. A lot of the Japanese, uh, you know, are, go down there uh, with their families and stuff as well. So it's part of the culture, and uh, you know, good to good to experience it. How have you found the standard, mate? Like obviously now you've done Pro 14 Premiership top 14 laterally and now out there in top league how have you found the standard generally of training compared to like a Clermont week in week out and then the standards I know there's only been a couple of games it was pushed back but how have you found it so far oh listen Beach, it's, it's been brilliant and I think in terms of like the work ethic and stuff of the of the players the Japanese players you know it's excellent you certainly can't fall out of the train really hard and certainly how it works here at uh, Shining Arts um, we've got quite a lot of company players um, you know, that make up the the majority of the group, uh, and then obviously we're with the foreign guys, and we only have three uh, professional Japanese players. We, we've got some good players uh, here at NTT. Uh, Christian Lele Alfano, uh, sadly, he's, he's injured his Achilles, but a guy called Fletcher Smith came over as well. He's played a lot of rugby in New Zealand. Jimmy Tupo as well in, in the second row. He plays six um, as well. So a lot of good players. Uh, but the standard of the league is pretty good. And let's talk about your time in France then, Greg, because Benji touched on it. You were there with him. How much did you enjoy your few years in France? And give us an insight into what it's like turning up at the Stade Marcel Michelin. Is, is Benji the per- first person you see? Do they put him in front of everyone and say, here's a, here's a French Englishman to welcome all the foreigners in? Or how does it work? <laughs> It was a little bit like that for me, actually. Benji, wasn't it? Because uh, Benji was good mates with uh, with Jason White, who, who I know has been on the show as well. And I'd actually, once I'd signed for Claremont, I, I headed out um, one weekend to go and have a look at some houses, etc. And, and uh, Jason arranged the sort of uh, get together with with Benji and, and the whole family. And and, and Benji had, uh, invited a, lot, a few of the other guys along, Nick Bender and. Uh, Flip Van der Melvin stuff as well, so that was brilliant for me. I think just to you know have a sort of English speaking person that I knew was going to be at the club when I first went there, and um, now my time in Claremont was was awesome. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, a fantastic club, um, you know, and, and some great people in that part of France for sure. If there was any doubt of him ever going to sign for Clermont, then he he rocks up in Clermont. The sun is as shining. We have a few beers and have a brunch at the house and you have a great time. He went in a box of a mate of mine who basically drinks <laughs> red wine for breakfast and who fell in love with Greg uh, and it was saying how much he wanted to invite him to do this, to do that. Then on the Sunday, didn't Jason take you to l'Auberge de la Moreno, which is like a restaurant yeah. up in the mountains, which you eat the truffade, which is like the local delicacy in, in, in Clermont. It's like a potato dish. That's absolutely delicious. So he had the weekend. There was no chance in the world he could have possibly signed anywhere else. And then he signed... And then we had the shittiest season of the last decade, the year after. <laughs> not because of him, not because of him, but because we won the league that year. It's that year, uh, 17, where we, we won the league, but we lost the Champions Cup final. And after that, the first thing that we did was to go to Vegas um, after uh, basically to start our new season, which wasn't the, the smartest thing to do. And we had, I think, a total of 19 injuries at some point. Greg actually arrived injured. Well, you were injured yourself pretty early. And remember, you try to rush back to come back because, you, you you know, you hate to be the injured guy that joins a new club, right? And one of the big sure. signings. So he was, he was rushing to come back, but then took it a little bit too quick. So basically, first season, absolutely shite. Second season, tremendously good. Yeah, it was a bit like that, wasn't it? It was, well, it was your guys' uh, fault for all going on a piss for you know a couple of weeks <laughs> yeah. before i arrived so i never got to go on that trip i knew a couple of the new guys 
that that signed. I think the first thing they done was was went uh, down to Ibiza with you boys and and got on the beers for for a couple of weeks. But I, I was a little bit late because um, you know, fortunately for me, I, I went on the lines too, so I turned up a little bit later. And then um, I think it probably was my fault a little bit that season, because I was the first guy to get injured. And then after that, it was it was just a you know a bit of an abomination. After that, all all everybody seemed to get injured, and as Benji said, I think we had about seventeen or eighteen injuries. Um, but you know, we I think that was testament to to the squad, I guess. When when we were the set the my second season, we were able to bounce back, uh, won the Challenge Cup. Um, sadly, we were beaten in the the final of the top fourteen. Uh, you know, which that definitely is is a game that I think about quite a lot. And, uh, you know, it was a bit of a disaster because I would have loved to have won it for sure. Were you disappointed not to stay on Greek a little bit further at Clermont? Because I, I remember ages ago talking to you before you signed you, I think you were between Clermont and Toulon and I was saying, look, just do not go to Toulon, go to Clermont, like big club, stability, good structure, it's the place to be. Um, but I got the feeling you did your years, but you were absolutely on fire. You were in competition with Morgan Para, who maybe got a little bit more not favouritism, but he's obviously absolute legend at the club. It's pushed very hard. And Frank Azema didn't renew you. Were you disappointed not to stay on? Because like you were playing so well and extremely well. It seemed like the club suited you down to the ground. You were on fire every single week. You're fantastic. Was it was it disappointing not to keep going a little bit more with Clermont? Yeah, of course. I think any time you, as, as you mentioned there, beats like any time you play for like a, a big club and certainly somebody like, you know, Clermont for me. And, you know, I was delighted that I ended up signing for Clermont because... As I talked to you at the time, I, I you know I was talking to Toulon, and uh, but I just didn't feel that was the right fit for me. And obviously, I knew Morgan. Um, Morgan was was up at Claremont, legend of the club, and you know a great rugby player as well. But I just felt that Claremont was a better fit for me as as a player and as a person. And I truly believe you know it turned out uh, to be like that. So, oh, of course, you know I, if I probably had the opportunity to to stay, I would have certainly looked at it absolutely because you know I was. As Benji mentioned, I was probably just properly settling into to my life in Claremont and really enjoying it and, and playing good rugby. And but I guess probably the biggest frustration for me is uh, just the way it ended in terms of you know the COVID. Uh, you know, not really being able to finish my sort of last season. You know, at Claremont, I think we we don't. Um, you know, we qualified already, Benji, hadn't we for for the the quarterfinals of Europe and stuff like that as well. So you know, I've got to you know try and push on and try and again as far as we can in that competition and again try and win the, the top 14 so yeah a little bit frustrating to end like that but you know it's it's such as life so you look at new opportunities and you move on I don't know if you saw uh, Greg but um, Frank Azema announced that he's going to leave the club uh, in, in the summer yeah, and it's did, a conversation that myself and Greg had a fair few times so to, you, you're too humble to say it Greg but the only reason why he didn't get re-signed is because Frank, Frank was basically under a lot of pressure to renew that squad to um, basically get the new guys who are going to be the future leader of the teams. So there was a lot of decisions. Nick abandoned on Ice Toeva, Greg, uh, what flipped the year before. There was a lot of guys, Damian Shuli, uh, the same year as me. You know, there was sort of questions about, listen, we want to keep you. We absolutely adore you. But at the same time, you got to think of the future for the club. And Greg was definitely one of them. I mean, you, you only arrived at the club that you were already in the leadership group. Second season, you were captain a fair few times. Not the captain of the team, but still, you know, we're really pulling it through. I remember um, the Challenge Cup final. Um, Morgan gets injured after 20 minutes and then you came on. I don't think you missed a kick or something. And there was a sort of a sense that, you know, it, it was going to be something, not just a guy that's there to play, but a guy who's really there to deliver, to bring something. And the only reason why he didn't get re-signed is because there was a necessity of, of bringing some from fresh guys who are going to be the leader for the next sort of 10 years. We spoke about it on, on the pod here a couple of weeks ago. I always said, I adore Frank. I think he's a very human guy. But there was always a sense when he resigned, is it not just that year too much? You know, because at some point your chat is just not going to hit enough. And he's got the balls to basically apply. That's what he said. He mentioned you actually, Greg, yeah. in the French press last week or two weeks ago by saying, I applied to myself the same um, reasoning that I said to Aistoyeva, to Julien Pierre before, to Greg Ledlow, to Nick Abendanon about saying, I love you guys, but I've got to think of a head and I'd rather not resign you the year too much. The year, you know, the, the, the extra year, there would be too many. And I want to apply it to myself. I have two more years of contract, but I, I'm going to get out of it in the summer because I just feel that I've hit that limit. Yeah, I think, as you say, Benji, I, I had a good relationship with Frank. And certainly when I, when I first read that in the press, I was, I was surprised. But, you know, when I hear you say that, I could, I could almost see Frank, you know, making that decision. I think that's the, the type, of, type of man he is. And, 
and yeah, he might have you know another opportunity in the in the pipeline, but I think he he's made that decision for the best interest of the club, and I think he'll he'll truly believe that. And you know, and he's been there a long time. You know, as you said, uh, Benji, I think 11, 11 years, something like that. Pretty he, much, yeah. So that's a long time, you know, to as you said to to try and drive standards to almost have that the same voice talking all the time and. And I know he's he's made a lot a few couple of changes of the coaching staff this season as well, which has probably helped him. Uh, but I think it says a lot for him to to you know to step away from a, a two year contract, you know, and, and certainly from my time there at Claremont, I, you know, I, I know how much uh, the, the club meant to him. He was he's a real passionate man. And Benji, we spoke about it last week. Uh, you said you were going to do some digging for us. Get straight on the phone to Frank afterwards. So, did you? Is the <laughs> is, is the move to Montpellier done deal? And has he got a job for you and Greg next no, season? Said, yeah. I said that if you saw in the press after my phone call that I signed from Montpellier, that means the phone call went well. So he didn't pick up. He didn't pick up. <laughs> but to be honest, to be honest, I um, he did answer one of my texts and stuff because I just said that I hope he's okay and all that. And he said, yeah, no, it's just it's, it's just a long time coming. For, you know, he we we both know what he was talking about. There's always been a doubt in his head about isn't it not wasn't it already a year and a half ago the year and a half too much basically. So he's trying to correct a mistake. Apparently, there's nothing with Montpellier. Apparently, okay. I think it's going to be a matter of zeros. It's the best negotiation. You say, no, I don't want to go to Montpellier where we've added a zero. Yeah, I'll go to Montpellier. That'll be fine. So I don't, we'll see about that one. But no, no, I spoke to a couple of leaders from from the Clermont uh, group, and to be honest, he called them all on Sunday to say that's the first thing he's going to say in the Monday morning meeting. And the boys, nobody knew. It really is a self-inflicted decision. He hasn't said anything about the rest of his staff. He hasn't said anything. Just to put it in between brackets, the club have said. We've accepted, obviously, if if we find a suitable solution for the summer. Because at the moment, they've got nothing. I'm sure they will find somebody good, but you never know. And it might be, I don't know, Michael Checker might be saying, yeah, I'll come, but I'll come with all my staff. That means you need to get rid of all the other ones. That's a huge pay, uh, you know, a big, huge check. So to answer your question, no, I did not speak to the boss man, but I will soon. And at the moment, uh, the players knew absolutely nothing about it. They understand it, but they feel bad. I know Camille Lopez told me that he was really actually almost pissed off because the reason why he resigned is because of Frank asked him to resign. And a couple of players have been on that. We talked about why you ended up leaving, but you nearly ended up staying and nearly signing for Perpignan as well before you chose to go to Japan. But did you think it was the year, like we're the same age, we came through age grade together. Obviously with COVID uh, finances being hit, GIF restrictions coming in and pelting everything. Did you find this year, it was like that contract too far in France. It was unfortunate timing for our year of foreigners that loads of people got shifted on and you were maybe one of those unfortunate casualties that couldn't quite resign the top 14 because like when you were playing there, there were, I think there was something like six head coaches in top 14 were phoning and asking like, what's Greek doing? Is he staying? And then nothing came through pipeline wise because A, there was no finance and B, everybody had to sort of get rid of all the, their non-Gief players. So was that the kind of contract too far? Do you reckon think you're a little bit unfortunate not to try and stay in France and do one more? I don't know, Johnny. I think it's it's a tough one to answer. I guess you know, almost sitting on the outside of it. But I've, I've no, I've no doubt. Like going forward, I think um, you know the chief, um, you know, impact it's going to have on on you know foreign players coming into coming into France. And I think obviously the restrictions are, are getting tighter and tighter. So it's probably going to be harder and harder. Um, as you mentioned, um, you know, I was I spoke to to Perpignan. Uh, yeah, which actually was I was really close, uh, probably, and I was really torn what what to do to, to stay in France and um, and sign for Perpignan because I, I was really impressed by the Perpignan coaches. I think they they sort of took a long time to to come and speak to me and, and say, look, the, the club have kind of made mistakes in the past, and, we, and we, we're trying to get good people now and, and sort of bring the youth through. And and you know they sort of looked at me as as being a a, a big figure, I guess, and, and trying to help that happen and, and bring through the youth players. So you know I was, yeah, you know, I was I was quite you know humbled uh, by that, and I, I was I was really close to going because it's in terms of well one a club in terms of the history it's it's fantastic, uh, the support base, um, you know two lifestyle you know would have been awesome as well. But I think just. You know the, the the Japanese thing. It was just it was a really good opportunity to to just experience something completely different in, in my career. And as you guys all, all know, the same as me, you only really get one chance at it. So I, I just felt that if I don't do this now, I'll, I'll never be able to do it. Um, so that was probably the reason in the end that you know I ended up um, you know coming over here rather than staying in France. Johnny mentioned it before, Morgan Parra. I just want to ask about that relationship because it must be tough going into a club with a guy like that ahead of you and competing against him. Benji's mentioned before he is a quite a dominant force in that 
that dressing room as you would imagine after being there and playing such a prominent role for so long what was your relationship like with him and how tricky was that going in and essentially trying to take that shirt off him that he's had for so long yeah listen I think there's probably times that you know Morgan didn't didn't maybe like me too much in those times <laughs> you know I'd get frustrated as well but I think I really thought long and hard about you know when I was going to Claremont I knew that would be one of the big challenges but for me, it was it was really healthy uh, because I, I knew if I wanted to to one play in a team, two play good rugby, yeah, I, I really need to push myself, um, you know, to 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 get into that Claremont team and you know, in, in front of Morgan and, or you know, playing alongside uh, Morgan, whatever it was. And I always just say to myself, you know, if if I get chosen, if I get given that opportunity, I'll make sure I'm you know I'm ready to play, and you know, I'll just I'll just put my best rugby on the field and, and let my rugby do the talking. So. Uh, that's what I tried to do in my time in Claremont and I think you know certainly that second season I was there yeah, I was in really good form and, and really enjoying my one my time in France and, and two my rugby and, um, and I think you know building the relationships um, you know also with Morgan as well because he was he's a, as, as we talked about before he's a, he's a massive figure for the club and, and he understands the top 14 uh, you know I've, I've listened to the show and before and you know Benji Johnny you guys have talked about about it before. Top fourteen is different. It's a little bit different from from other competitions. So you know, I would sort of use Morgan as well to to try and help my game in the top fourteen. To be honest, when there's two guys who are ready to compete uh, at that level, there's also there's a sense of respect between them too. I think the by by challenging each other, not making it easy for each other, uh, by going full on, was actually a way of. Of, of respecting each other. And I felt that funny enough, the two of them had the same attitude. So Greg didn't mind being on the bench, but he clearly showed that, listen, that's not why he came here. He was there to challenge and to compete for their starting position. And the same time, everything, every time that Morgan was on the bench, he's like, listen, I can't wait to, to, to kick him off the team because that's, that's my team. That's my thing. But that, that only brought the best out of the two. And to be honest, I think you've mentioned it a few times, Greg, once you understood what the animal of top 14 was from within you actually had more respect for what Morgan did in terms of a com body commitment and knowing exactly exactly the edge that it needs to perform. And the same way that uh, Greg coming over to Clermont, Morgan after a couple of months, and it usually takes Morgan longer because he's, he's <laughs> because he can be a bit of a dick. But it, it was it took him a little bit more time. But in the end, he would fully admit that he was really impressed with the way that Greg handled that transition and understanding the beast that is top 14 in French rugby and then performing at it, if you know what I mean. So it was really a matter of mutual respect, but it just takes a bit of time with those angry little shits that are number nine, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. Thankfully, we never had too much contact at training and then Claremont as well. It's probably helped if we were able to stay out each other's way a little bit during <laughs> the weekend and then stuff like that. But I think, you know, as you mentioned there, KK's... Morgan was he was pretty aggressive, you know, for a nine, and I think that longevity he's had uh, in the top fourteen in terms of the way he does play for Clermont, he, he puts his body on the line, and you know he's almost like a ninth forward uh, a little bit when he plays for Clermont, uh, you know, especially at start Marcel Michelin. So, yeah, I, I learned a lot, I guess, you know, pretty quickly off the way he played uh, when I was there, and when Morgan wasn't playing, when I was playing, that you know I had that you know standard to live up to, I guess, in many ways, and. And that probably helped me, you know, play some some good rugby as well. And just before we get let you go, Greg, you're obviously enjoying the the start to life in Japan. But how long are you there for? Um, have you got another big move in you after that? And have you thought about what you might do after you leave Japan, life after rugby, or another big move? Uh, I don't know about many more big moves now. Uh, to be honest, uh, Tim, I think you know, obviously, I'm 35 now, and um, I've signed for two seasons out here with with NTT. Um, the season lands pretty short. Um, albeit um, pre-season has been uh, a fairly long one this year so uh, you know I'm, I'm hanging on there at the minute and I'm pretty happy the league started now so um, I, I don't know is, is, is the answer um, is the short answer I mean, in terms of what I'm going to do and uh, when my contract runs out uh, over here I can't see myself you know playing too much longer off the back of that that's for sure I'm not missing Scotland, but, you know, a lot of times you, you think about it. You know, my parents are not getting any younger now. I've been away from from Scotland now for a long time. 
you know, I was down in Gloucester, Clermont. So, you know, I've been away seven, eight years now. Um, certainly on the horizon, I'll be a move back to, to Scotland at some point. I'm pretty passionate about staying in the game, uh, for sure. I've got another couple of different avenues that I'm, I'm involved in at the moment, away from the game, which, which I'm really enjoying as well, because... I think when you get to the aging stage that I'm at, I think it's really important to, to start planning about what you're eventually going to do. And uh, I, I definitely want to stay in the game, but you know whether that becomes feasible, you just never know. And so what are you doing away from the game, mate? You talked about a couple of adventures. Anything interesting going on? Like, obviously, I've known you since we were 16. I know that you would be an amazing skills coach, kicking coach, analyst. Like, rugby sense, you'd be phenomenal. Drinking coach as well, apparently, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not me. I need coaching. <laughs> Yeah. more practice but you're too straight lace need some practice but in terms of getting back to Scotland any other avenues apart from coaching because 100% you could do that you'd be phenomenal we've always known that but anything else that piqued your interest you'd like to get involved in uh, yeah I think obviously um, coming back to Scotland is I'm a really passionate Scotsman as you know obviously you know Johnny and Benji I think you've probably picked up on from uh, you know a couple of couple of nights of down in the wine cave in your place in Claremont so um, <laughs> I'm I'm involved oh, with a, a, <laughs> I'm involved with a, a new whiskey startup uh, back in Scotland called uh, Wolf Creek, which is really exciting for me because, as I said, I think just to have that something away from the game and um, it just gives me, you know, sort of a bit of a new stimulus, I guess, to to get my teeth sunk into something and almost learn a, a bit of a new craft as well. So. Uh, Wolf Craig's going to be based um, in Stirling um, with a brand new distillery that, that it's uh, due to start being built um, later on this year, uh, if all goes to plan uh, you know, with COVID, etc. Which is awesome because out here in Japan, they absolutely love their whiskey. Thanks ever so much for coming on the show, Greg, and um, a massive good luck with the, the top league season and um, good luck with the whiskey as well. We look forward to tasting it. Cheers, guys. Pleasure. Cheers, Greg. Cheers, mate. Take care, Greggy. Cheers. Well, let's have a chat now about the other Six Nations games in round three because there weren't any French players involved. But we chatted about French referees to Mike Adamson last week and there were a few decisions that were maybe questionable <laughs> this weekend. So, Benji, what did you make of Pascal Gauzer's performance in Cardiff? Hang on, forget about Pascal Gauzer. Can we first uh, acknowledge the fact that my predictions were absolutely spot on? <laughs> All right, so... I predicted an Irish victory 45-10. I think they, they won, what, 48-10 or something like that? Yep. So it really, really wasn't far off. And I, I was probably the only one in Europe to, to predict that Wales were going to win this one. Yes, they might have had just a little bit of help with some <laughs> controversial decisions. But to be honest, we, we can speak about them. I think, well, basically there's two main decisions, right? Nothing's personal. It's not Pascal Gauzer or French refereeing or France in general hating uh, Owen Farrell in England and Eddie Jones and wanting to punish them. It's very, very problematic, controversial, edgy decision-making, and, and they want to back their decisions. So I, I couldn't help but listening that the video ref was Alexandre Ruiz, and I didn't even have to, to look at the lineup because I, I could recognize his voice straight away. And for one, when Alexandre Ruiz speaks to Pascal Gauzer in English, to analyze a play, I hated it. I hated it, to be honest, because you can go into more detail in your native tongue, you know, and when it's such decision, tough decision making, they might want to say, yes, for everybody to understand. Okay, but do you want people to understand or do you want the right decision to be made? So for the knock-on one, I have no clue, to be totally honest. When you really rewind it, I have a feeling that he might be taking it a little bit backwards. It does bounce back. I don't know. That's a tough one. But, but for the tap-and-go one, I really do think it's not so much a mistake from Gauzer. It's Elliot Daly walking, but it's also Dan Bigger. I think that's him who's, who's on the ball, who Smart. eats Pascal Gauzer alive. You and so he's them. pressing and um, tell me what I play. Tell me what I can play. Tell me what I can play. And bang, bang, taps a go. What I don't uh, uh, like about Pascal Garzel's attitude is the way that he brushed off Owen Farrell to, straight after. When, to be honest, you could take just a second to explain it. Not, I told you to speak to your players. The time is on, we played. I think it deserves just a tiny bit more explanation than that. Uh, and we're talking fine margin. So, yes, I think both calls were very controversial. I think probably... I would have given the quick tap. I would have not given the knock-on. That's just my gut feeling, but I'm not a ref and I would be a very, very poor ref. I do think it's no, nothing personal. It's just maybe the, 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 the French way of refereeing is a bit more based on attitude and showing who's boss. But then, see from captaining a Bayonne side, you learn that in the top 14. You learn how to speak to French referees. You learn how you have to communicate and you have to be really clear. So for instance, 
in that situation with Owen Farrell, if I was in his shoes, I would say, Pascal, please let me know when time is back on. It's like, this, it's the first thing that I did in top 14. If they ask you to speak to your team, it's to pass a message. You understand cumulative um, penalty pressure. There might be yellow card next. Go and speak to your team. But you have to say, we need to be ready and we need to have like a warning for when the game goes back in. The fact that they were all in a huddle cluster, not really paying attention. And that wasn't the only time that they looked lackadaisical for the Elliot Daly mistake as well. Like, it was schoolboy, really. But I think, look, you're right. Dan Bigger absolutely played 100%. Really well played, really cute. But that's part of the game. You play the ref. You If you get a penalty middle of pitch, you send your wingers to either side. If there's something cheap to take, you take it and you get seven points on the board. It's just part of rugby. But in terms of working with a referee, like you'll never make that mistake again, Owen Farrell. But there were loads of schoolboy mistakes. But Owen's got to go back and he's got to say, okay, I speak to my players. We're in a huddle, but let me know when time is on and let us get set. He made that point after he said, you have to let us get set, but you have to make clear with the ref because it's a great area. You can go, but yeah. you've been given the time, but how long is the time? There's no clock. There's no stop clock. So you have to make sure that when that time is up, you're ready to play and you have relayed, relayed that information with the ref. And that's what Owen Farrell didn't do. So for me, as much as it may look like a gray area, England have been played, but played really well by Dan Bigger. I, I thought hats off. The only sticking point for me was Dan Bigger asked, when can I play? When can I play? Pascal Gozer doesn't then refer across to any of the England team, hand up, whistle on his mouth, blows, and then says, time on. And I'm like, it was almost like yeah. he was going along with the Welsh boy. That was the only bit. I was like, geez, he's really been played and, and now he can't go back because time's on. He, he started the game. He can't change anything. The second one for me, Rizamit, I'd never, ever thought that he looked like he was in control of that ball and looked like he knocked it forward off his ass. That was not a try. But then the third one, again, the third try when... Johnny Hill, clumsy clear out, tries to take out Ken Owens and the scrum half gives away a penalty under his sticks. Everyone in England thinks, oh, it's, they're going to knock over three points. Elliot, that's the first thing a defence coach tells you in every club worth their salt. Any defence coach says, if there's a penalty, you're playing against a scrum half that's quick, naughty, and wants to get go forward for his team. Your eyes are on the prize. Your eyes are on the ball. You're front facing. Elliot Daly was walking towards the post with his head down. You're like, mate, like absolute basics. So for me, yes, there's a lot of unrest on social media and this and that but ultimately as Eddie Jones said after the game England have to look at themselves and whether that is their attitude on the field or Itoji giving away five penalties but I'm like mate yeah. you can't get so I always felt whenever I was on the pitch if I gave away one I felt embarrassed or I was letting my teammates down because that was one fifteenth of really what we should be allowed to do which meant the five other my teammates had nothing they didn't have one penalty giveaway but for a bloke I know he plays on the edge but to give away five you're like mate once you've done two back in your box, I know you play on the edge, but play on the line, play smart, play aggressive, but you can't give away five penalties. The only thing that you do is when you smell that it's fishy, that the ref decided to ref that way for some whatever reason, you back off. 100%. Back off, assess later, don't play on the edge. Precisely what you said. The conclusion to this, listen to the French rugby podcast. We will explain to you why the refs are so... <laughs> of so different, why the French are so particular in general, and then you will know. But you have to be clear with them. That's the point that I would want to make. With French refs, obviously second language as well, you have to know exactly where you stand. And that's where captains in Six Nations, you, you know what you're getting. You know there might be communication issues, so you have to be clear. And look, I've been the first one to be critical of Wales, but if that match was played again with the same ref and England's attitude and their discipline... Wales would win that game nine times out of 10. I thought they were outstanding. So well done them. And clarity would have helped with Pascal Gozer. But what about Mathieu Reynal and TMO Roman Poit, who both seem to miss Ian Henderson, clearly touching the ball down over the line? Presumably that's just one where, what happened? I don't know. I don't know. I think, I think unfortunately, unfortunately, refereeing is very, very tough and everybody makes mistakes, right? Yeah, but no, mate, like that was a clear try. Like that's what a TMO is for. Roman Poit is one of the leading world refs and he's come on and given it no, like it's a clear cut try. And I have no explanation for that at all, that that's a little bit shambolic for me. And like as much as Pascal Gozer's could be interpretations and, you know, decisions with communication on the pitch, Ian Henderson, for me, is cut and dried. That's a try all day long, and I have no idea how they came to that conclusion, but there you go. And just on the broader point, Benji, because you think French refereeing is a bit average at times. Clearly, they're assessed really well by World Rugby, and they're given these, these top games. It wasn't a great weekend for them in terms of those incidents this weekend, but what's your kind of view generally about why they're given these these big games and the, the standard in general. Wow, uh, that's a bit of my reach, mate. Uh, I know you you back me and, and you rate me, but I have no clue. I have no clue how they get those gigs. To be honest, it's there must be an explanation that's more than just having um, 
that's more political. than just having the boss man. It's not just having the boss man to be to be head of um, Joel Duge is basically a former international French ref who is now head of the world world rugby refereeing. Yeah, but in 2019 he wasn't, and still the French were the most represented there. I think maybe what they like is basically the cut, not the cutting edge, but sort of the cutthroat, this uh, quick decision making. You know, there were constantly problems with refereeing saying too much TMO, too much time loss. You can't, you know, ask for 700 um, scrums to be repeated. You can't ask for this. You can't ask for that. And again, for Pascal Goza, just give him credit. There's been some mistakes. Absolutely. But he was harsh on both sides. And he's a good ref. It's a mix of, yes, there might have been one major mistake that ended up having a big consequence. Okay. But there's also England need to look at their discipline before blaming the ref. But it's true that maybe the reason why they get those gigs and the reason why they rate it so highly, I don't think sometimes it's the, like you would say, Wayne Barnes probably let too, lets too many things happen. But sometimes if you if you blow the whistle every single time there's a penalty, you, you never finish a rugby game, right? There's 700 penalties on both sides. So... There's a bit of everything to it. But to answer your question, I have no idea how they get those gigs. I have no idea who's assessing what and how. All I know is that there are some good refs in France. Generally, I don't think there's seven fantastic refs in France. The problem of French refereeing is not so much center ref. It's the fact that the side refs, the touch judge, the TMOs are poor. I think there's a lot of politics. Obviously, it's still panel selection. And that's how these things work, which is still quite amateurish in how it's run. I think the biggest difference is interpretation. That's the biggest bugbear for Brits that watch French referees is that when you're used to watching Premiership rugby or Pro 14 rugby, their interpretation laws are, are used differently and applied differently, clearly between top 14 and British rugby. And that's just the taste of French refs versus British refs. But Benji, generally speaking for referees how frustrated did you get like my biggest one in france was home bias yeah massively because there's a lot of pressure and stuff but it's not that that's not what made me tick what made me tick is is the french referees attitude sometimes you would get some guys who clearly have small man syndrome you would just want to prove a point to prove a point would be overly aggressive sometimes not aggressive dismissive but, uh, yeah dismissive in Trying a mean shut people down shitty way uh, they would call guys from the first names when you would address them at like Mr. Ref and they would call you on the first name just to say that, you know, they know who you are. They've got this connection that that I don't like. And I'm going to shut from there because I already got in trouble once. But I, I, there's a certain amount of them <laughs> who I think let their egos run. Um, and for me, the personality of Ref is massive. And that's why I've always liked Nigel Owens, just because he had the balls to basically come out, do this and still behave the same way. And I still think he's res he's respectful. I still think you can chat to him. He does get angry. He can tell guys to bugger off sometimes. Time he gives a bollocking, but it's it's always nice. He can take a joke. Wayne Barnes, you can speak to him. There's a real connection. So he'll make mistakes like everybody else. But at least he's a guy that listens. He's a guy that's got empathy. He's not disrespectful. Some French, not all of them. Um, to be fair, Garces is very respectful. Well, was because now he stopped. But there's a lot of you know he could speak good English and stuff. Romain Poit was okay. Uh, Pascal Gauzier, that's not so much his issue. But some other guys, oh, he's just for the sake of they'd be like, they'd be like, you know, they were like, tell you off, pointing a finger, and my word. And just a quick line on the top four team before we go. What a result for your old club, Johnny Bayon, winning away at Toulon. Unbelievable. Look, for Bayon to have gone after taking 75 points pretty much last week at Clermont, a couple of guys that have been brought in, so Vincent Pello, who my old teammate from Montpellier is a loose head, Amosa as well, who'd been drafted in, wasn't being used at Bordeaux. Urios didn't want him at Bordeaux. They, they brought him down as a medical joker. He was the best player on the pitch for me. And look, a scrappy game, uh, Toulon without pretty much their entirety of their first 15, but huge. And look, Montpellier... A good bonus point away for them last weekend, but there's a couple of crunches coming up. So Bayonne have got to play Poe. Um, they've got Agen at home. And they had a really tricky period after Christmas where they had four or five weeks without games due to COVID. Um, and hopefully this could put a little spring in their step, give them a bit more confidence and set them on the right path to staying up. So not a huge win. And at the other end of the table, Benji, we mentioned La Rochelle were flying. Toulouse beat them away, didn't they? And had Cheslin Colby starting at fly half again. Yeah, that, honestly, that's a huge win that I did not see coming. Few guys missing. I mean, between Bourgarit and Aldrit and Winnie Antonio and Toulouse are obviously missing a lot of guys and delivered a hell of a performance. Cheslin Colby, you just don't know where he's going to stop. He's a freaking freak. freak. Magician. He's just too good. 
Um, so yeah, big, big upset. Um, Toulouse will be chuffed with that one because that's a big, big one. La Rochelle again are the one of the most with Toulouse, one of the most impressive teams at the moment. But just to go back to the Toulon Bayonne game, the consequences are that 26th of March seems to be the date that's been picked for the France Scotland game to be played. If it seems to be picked, that means that the Premiership clubs will agree to release their Scottish players. If it seems to be picked, that means everybody's agreed. And now apparently Toulon saying no, because after losing at home. They're massively in trouble and they're desperate to get their internationals back. Gabin Villiers, Charles Olivon, Baptiste Serin, and all those guys. Uh, and apparently they're the only one who said no. But you can understand why. Uh, yeah, you yeah, completely, yeah. You've got to fight your corner. You've got to have your players. Also, like to touch on the stats, because of this year being a COVID year, it's gone from last year. There was, I think it was a 20%. Every weekend there was 20% of the games were won away from home. This year it's 35. Like There's been a massive jump in, in teams doing something away from home. So you, you can fully understand why Toulon and their squad would want all these people back because the quality yeah. they're missing is huge. I think we might be revisiting that Toulon saga and the 26th of March date next week. So um, thanks, Benji. Thanks, Johnny. A big thanks to Greg for joining us as well. Thanks to all of you for listening. Make sure you hit subscribe, leave us a nice review, and we'll be back with another episode next week. Au revoir, guys. Cheers. See you, boys. Bye. Crowd Network, a place where you belong.